Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. So, yeah, thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's just such a pleasure to be here at the Center for Thomistic Studies. And, um, yeah, as I mentioned last night, the... Uh, faculty and the community here, even though this is the first time I've been on campus, has exercised huge influence on my intellectual formation. So um, it's really a privilege to be here. And um, so maybe to start, I just want to evoke an old analogy that hit me a weird way when I first heard it in grad school that really is sort of the inspiration for the project I'm going to talk about today. And that's the analogy of the human mind to a light. And when we update the analogy, we usually say, well, the, the, the mind is like a flashlight in a dark room that lights up a little bit of the room at a time. Thinking is the lighting up of something. And I don't know why this analogy made such a strong impression on me when I first heard it, but it's been percolating for years and gradually something began to dawn on me, which is that I had started off assuming when I first heard the analogy that someone is in the background holding the flashlight and seeing something by the flashlight beam. But actually, in the traditional framing of the analogy, the light isn't a tool that the mind uses to see things. It's actually the case that the light is the mind itself, the light of the flashlight. It's the beam of the flashlight that's on only when it's lighting something up. The light and the, what it lights up comes into existence at the same time. Or even maybe we can say it more strongly, the lighting up and the light are one and the same, or the mental is nothing other than manifestation. And that's the idea that's at the heart of the book that I've been working on, which is called Knowing is Being in Aquinas, a Metaphysical Model of Mind. And the central thesis of this book is what I want to discuss today. So the project of the book is not just to correct this or that localized misinterpretation of something Aquinas says about intellect, but more fundamentally to alter the model that holistically shapes our reading of his entire theory of intellect, and perhaps even of his entire philosophy of mind. So what I argue is that we've been reading Aquinas' philosophy of mind and mental activity through the wrong lens, through the lens of what I call connective models of mind. And those are relational models, such as touching or seeing or grasping. And on this model, knowing is connecting. Contrary to that, I want to argue Thomas Aquinas himself is better read using what I call a metaphysical model of mind, which models knowing on changes in the natural world, the actualizing of a potential. So like a sapling that grows into a tree or water that gets hotter. <coughs> this is a model that's found in late antiquity. You can find it in Alexander of Aphrodisias, but it's developed especially in medieval Islamic philosophers and then transmitted to medieval scholastic philosophy. And on this model, knowing is being, a certain kind of being that consists in manifestation. So why has this way of reading Aquinas sort of fallen by the wayside? or hasn't really been noticed. I think part of this is, is due to the fact that there's a tendency to read Aquinas in light of what comes afterwards. It's, it's quite natural. Descartes comes along, Locke comes along, and then those are the primary interlocutors that we have in mind when we're reading Aquinas. Um, and then there's also a tendency to avoid anything in Aquinas that smacks of approaching the human soul from above um, in a more Neoplatonic way. And I think that stems from a worry about committing him to something that's going to start sounding worryingly like dualism. Well, this might be something worrying, but I think let Aquinas speak for himself, and then we'll just take care of the details when we figure out what they are. So the plan for the paper, 
First of all, I want to talk a little bit more about connective models of mind as a foil for the view that I want to attribute to Aquinas. And then secondly, I want to introduce Aquinas' metaphysical model and give a big picture overview of the main theses of, of this account. And then thirdly, very briefly, I'm going to draw out one metaphysical insight that we're freed up to see once we have this theory of knowing as being in hand. All right. So firstly, connective models of the mind. And there's a handout, actually. Some of the texts I'm going to be talking about are on the handout. So if you don't have it, you might want to copy. Okay, so let me start by considering why it's important to investigate explicitly which imaginative models inform our reading of texts from the history of philosophy, such as those of Aquinas. So we might ask, we should ask, how do we model the mind and its activities in our philosophical discussions? The question is astonishingly almost never raised. Modeling is widespread in scientific practice, and an enormous body of literature in the philosophy of science is dedicated to discussing what models are, what they are for, how they relate to the realities being investigated. And yet, in contrast, there's hardly any literature about the philosophical use of models. Yet, I would argue, philosophers are just as dependent on models as scientists are, or at least models of a certain sort. In theorizing about the mind, there is always some assumed model working in this background that guides the way we set up relationships among the elements of a system and constrains what counts as a satisfying account of the relevant phenomena. But the problem is that as philosophers, we tend not to reflect much on the models we use, which leaves them to do their theory-shaping work unconsciously from the background. Much thinking and writing about the mind today is dominated by the spatial imagery of attaining and containing. So the mind is imagined as a kind of mental space in which objects are presented, or an inner eye to which those objects are presented, or a hand that reaches out to grasp them. Um, these, this category of imaginative models, which we can call connective models of mind, are rooted in what at first seems to be a perfectly innocuous assumption. You might think, well, mind is mind, world is world, one is not the other, and so we imagine them uh, from across each other, separated by a space, and then we imagine that cognition consists in the bridging of that space somehow. In other words, to cognize the world, mind has to attain the world, either directly or indirectly with the help of an intermediary. And in describing this attaining, we tend to use tactile imagery, like grasping or reaching, and visual imagery, like say, when we say something appears, comes up into consciousness or confronts the subject. Um, of course, the connecting doesn't have to be crudely construed. One might speak of the mind directly contacting the thing while denying that the mind literally touches anything outside itself. But my point is that no matter how non-literal we make these comparisons be, they can't help but introduce an ineliminable relationality and opposition into the very notion of mental activity. As long as we describe cognition as a presentation to someone or an experience had by someone, where the someone is imagined as situated over and against the experience or the presentation of the object, we're remaining within a fundamentally two-pole subject-object framework of the connective model of mind. Now, there's nothing wrong with the collective connective model of mind. They have a long and noble intellectual pedigree. Augustine, for instance, describes thought as occurring only when, quote, an object is placed within sight of the mind, forming the sight of the mind. Of course, his language about intensio also goes in the kind of connective direction. 
Locke states that the mind has no other immediate object but its own ideas, which it alone does or can contemplate. But, I argue, connective models have also been wrongly read into other theories where they don't belong, including that of Thomas Aquinas. Now, connective models have shaped readings of Aquinas for a long time, as evidenced by the intensity with which scholars have focused on intelligible species as the most important facet of his intellectual theory. In studying Aquinas on intellect, scholars have been mostly concerned with whether the intellect and the world fixed in their various places in the space of reality can reach each other. The obstacle to connection is the intervening distance, and connection is achieved by having one of the separated parties cross the space somehow. Intelligible species are supposed to be the mechanism whereby the intellect becomes able to close the gap. Quote, Something from outside cognition must get into cognition, as Owens puts it. And once this happens, Aquinas' mind can, quote, reach up to the extramental reality, in Geech's words, or engage directly with reality, as Haldane states, or arrive at being such as it is in itself, according to Sanguinetti. The imagery of visual presentation is also widespread, so consider the neo-Thomistic theory of Aquinas' verbum mentis as something imminently produced by and presented to the intellect. As Pesach puts it, placed before me and objectified. Section two, Aquinas' metaphysical model. Now this connective model, I contend, is foreign to Aquinas' theory of mind and mental activities. Excuse me. For Aquinas, the philosophical project of explaining mental activities is not a project of setting up the right connections between intermental and extramental things, but rather a metaphysical product, project of describing how mental being comes to be in us and what its properties and possible actions are. So here's broadly how we might think of it. In Aquinas' metaphysics, creatures have potentials for acquiring all sorts of different kinds of being. For instance, heat, color, muscle tone, etc. Among these are various kinds of mental being, various kinds of mental being. Visual being, auditory being, tactile, imaginative, intellectual, etc. And each of them has as its essential property a distinctive what it is like. Our conscious experience precisely consists in the realization of those mental kinds of beings being in us. And all of those kinds of being go together to make up our unified experience. So conscious experience doesn't consist in setting up the right sorts of connections with things that are other and outside. Rather, it consists in something like a metaphysical growth. We acquire new kinds of being, conscious being, to which we were naturally in potency, like water becoming hot, or a sapling acquiring new leaves and branches. The conscious being that we gain is an expression of the beings that surround us and continually act on us, making us in their image. But knowing is not in itself a way of connecting with them across an intervening space. Rather, knowing is being, consciously, according to the image they impart to us. And I want to call this the metaphysical model of mind. Now, I can't explore all the implications of reading Aquinas this way. That's what the book will do. 
Um, so what I will try to do today is just uncover the foundations of this metaphysical model, just as applied to intellect, making the case for reading Aquinas' account of intellect as a metaphysics of intellectual being rather than a theory of mental connection. And what I want to document is that Aquinas holds that intellectual thought is a kind of real being to which self-manifestation belongs essentially. So I'm going to break down that claim into the following three, which are on your handout. First, intelligibility is a genus of being. Second, intelligibility is convertible with intellectuality. And third, intellectual intelligible being is essentially self-manifesting. All right, first thesis, intelligibility as a genus of being. Now, when we see the word intelligible in Aquinas, intelligible, it's very easy to get misled by the ibile ending. Now, typically when we see these kinds of words ending in ibile, we think that they indicate some kind of capacity to be acted upon. So something that is flammable is able to be burnt. Something that is um, edible is able to be eaten. And we might suppose then similarly that something that is intelligible is something that is able to be known. Right? And then we might look around the world and say, well, Aquinas' world is intelligible, meaning that if there happens to be a knower that comes along, these things can all be known by the knower. It's sort of a, a condition that they're in, that they can be known. Now I want to say that's a, that's a misreading of how Aquinas understands intelligibility, which is pretty distinctive. In reality, for him, intelligible is the name of a genus of being. In De Veritate 8.6, he describes the genus of intelligibles as follows. Well, this is on your handout. <clears throat> Nothing prevents something from being an act in one respect and in potency in another, just as a diaphanous body is indeed actually a body, but only potentially colored. Similarly, it is possible for something to be a being actually, which is only in potency in the genus of intelligibles. Now, there is a grade of act in potency in beings because something is only in potency, that's prime matter, and something is only in God, in act, sorry, that's God, and something is in act and in potency, which is everything else in between. And in the same way, in the genus of intelligibles, there is something that is only in act, namely the divine essence, and something that is only in potency, namely the human possible intellect, which is then this way placed in the order of intelligibles as prime matter in the order of sensibles, as the commentator says about De Anima 3. But all angelic substances are intermediate, having something of potency and of act, not only in the genus of beings, but also in the genus of intelligibles, in January intelligibilium. Now we might notice here that the description of intelligibility is highly metaphysically charged. The members of the genus of intelligibles are not extramental things, nor essences of things, nor contents of concepts. Rather, they are beings in actuality, all of which are intellects, such as God, angels, and the human intellect. Now Aquinas regularly opposes this genus of intelligibles to the genus of corporeal things or sensible things or natural things, corporalia, sensibilia, naturalia. And the point of his doing so, I contend, is to distinguish intelligible and body as the two fundamental genre in his category of substance. 
And here maybe we want to be a little bit more fine-grained and say technically body is not of itself something with a, a common nature. It doesn't form a genus by itself. So we would really need three fundamental genera, which are intelligibles, celestial bodies, and terrestrial bodies. But we don't have to worry about that right now. So we just take body anyway for, for shorthand as the alternative. So creatures must fall into one or the other genus. Aquinas writes that the immaterial and the material, the corruptible and the incorruptible, have, quote, diverse modes of potency and actuality, and therefore diverse modes of being, and are therefore said to be diverse genre. That's um, his commentary on De Trinitate. In De Veritate 8.9, he writes, quote, material things and intelligible things belong in every way to diverse genre. For those things that do not share a matter, do not share a genus, end quote. Speaking even more bluntly in De Potentia 7.10, he says, the thing that is outside the soul is in every way outside the intelligible genus. End quote. This distinction of intelligible being from corporeal being is consistent with Aquinas' well-known claim that intelligibility presupposes incorporeality. So he says, quote, every intelligible either is immune from matter in itself or abstracted by the action of intellect from matter. And it's very important that Aquinas never describes material things or even essences as instantiated in material individuals as intelligible, except to say that they're intelligible in potency. So if I pick a tree outside the window here, I think that's a live, I've learned that's a live oak, I believe. Maybe it's not. Um, it can only ever be potentially intelligible as it is in that tree the treeness of that tree, because it exists there in an end-mattered condition. So Aquinas says, no form existing in matter is intelligible in act, but only in potency. That's his commentary on the divine names. And there's very similar formulations in Alexander of Aphrodisias. Where he says, sensibles are not of themselves intelligibles. So what I want to suggest here is that intelligible is a positive name for incorporeal being. And the division of substance into corporeal and incorporeal is therefore a bifurcation, a division made by distinguishing not X or X from not X. Whereas corporeal and intelligible describe those same genre in terms of their positive distinguishing features. And I'm going to return to that uh, toward the end of the talk if we have time. Secondly, the thesis that intelligibility is convertible with intellectuality. As we've seen from the above passage from De Veritate 8.6, Aquinas' genus of intelligibles is populated by intellects, God, angels, and the human intellect. Indeed, he calls one and the same genus interchangeably, many times throughout his works, a genus or order of intellects, or a genus or order of intelligibles. He also speaks of separate forms interchangeably, as intelligible forms or intellectual forms. All the members of this genus are intellects. So then we might say, wait a minute, what about abstracted forms? What about the abstracted essences of tree or stone? Because Aquinas does say that they are made intelligible through be being abstracted from matter. So why do the abstracted essences never get listed when he's listing the members of the genus of intelligibles? And I think the reason is, is very significant. The reason is that Aquinas' metaphysics has no room for anything like immaterialized stone as a kind of bare, lifeless, immaterial object of thought. And I think it's here that Aquinas' concept of intelligibility really starts to get interesting. 
So what I'm suggesting here is that just as many Platonists construed the forms as thoughts or intellects, Aquinas holds that intelligible realities are, by their essence, intellectual realities. In other words, anything that is actually intelligible is intellectual and vice versa. So immaterialized, actually intelligible stone is never an inert, immaterial entity in the intellect or beheld by the intellect. Rather, it is nothing other than someone's intellect in actuality. So here's an example, and this, this, is, this is from De um, Spiritualibus Creaturis 1 ad 6, perhaps the most playful moment in um, Aquinas' writings, a delightful little thought experiment. You didn't know Aquinas even does thought experiments, but every so often he does them for us. Um, I think I got this text from Father Raphael Mary. We've yeah. discussed this a really long time ago. Yes. So credit Father Raphael Mary with this, um, with this text. Yeah, it has become my most fa favorite text in Aquinas. You got it from me, actually, Teresa. Yeah. Was it from you? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I'm giving Father Raphael Mary the credit. Don't give your husband. Never give your husband credit. Yeah, it's not my husband. We're going to talk about it later. You can give your worst husband. All the worst. All right, so the example is, if a box were to subsist by itself without matter, it would be self-understanding. For freedom from matter is the principle of intellectuality. And hence, an immaterial box would be the same as an intelligible box. And this is not just a one-off remark. Aquinas says the same thing in considering rejected theory of what happens to the substantial form of bread after the consecration of the Eucharist. So he says, if the substantial form of bread remained together with its matter after the consecration, then the bread would remain, and that would be contrary to the doctrine of transubstantiation because the substance of bread is replaced by the substance of Christ. But then Aquinas considers the possibility, is it, is it, could it be the case that the form of bread remains without the matter? And he says that can't be the case because if, if the form of bread remained without the matter of bread, then the form of bread would already be an actually intelligible form and therefore an intellect. It's very interesting. So these examples show that not, not only that every immaterial form is an intelligible form, but also that every intelligible form is an intellect. So as Aquinas puts it in an early text, quote, uh, commentary on the sentences, 135.11, just as the principle of particularization is matter, so too intelligibility is owed to form, whence form is the principle of cognition. And therefore, it is necessary that every form existing per se separate from matter is of an intellectual nature." End quote. So we must resist the tendency to think of the intelligible as an inert object over and against the intellect as a knowing or receiving subject. The intelligible is not in the intellect. It doesn't confront the intellect. It is not grasped by intellect. It is not received by intellect. Rather, Aquinas tells us that intellect and intelligibility are related as potency and actuality for being of the same genus. So there's some interesting texts. I might have put them all in the handout, but I'll just read um, the first one, which is, I think, particularly important. This is Summa Contra Gentiles 255. He says, the intelligible is the proper perfection of the intellect, whence intellect in act and intelligible in act are one. So what is proper to the intelligible, insofar as it is intelligible, 
must be proper to the intellect insofar as it is such, namely intellect, because the perfection and the perfectible are one in genus. So in other words, an intelligible is the intellect itself as actualized. Or we can say that the intellect is the potency whose actuality is the intelligible. Either way, the point is clear. There's not two different realities here that are composed, but rather one reality that might exist in actuality or in potency. All right, third thesis. Intellectual intelligibility is essentially self-manifesting being. Now, what kind of being is this, this being that is both intellect and intelligible? This takes us to the third idea that sets up Aquinas' <coughs> metaphysical model of mind, namely that intelligible being is intrinsically self-manifesting. Self-manifestation is the alternative in Aquinas' metaphysics to bodily existence. Self-manifesting being, wherever it is found, is essentially lit up to itself, essentially self-appropriating. In other words, an instance of intellectual, intelligible being, which could be an angel as a subsisting intellectual, intelligible form, or it could be the partially actualized human intellect, is just nothing other than an episode of self-manifestation. And that is why Aquinas calls intellectual being light, so he has a, here's a text from the commentary on the sentences. He says, light is said to be in spiritual things that which is related to intellective manifestation in the way that corporeal light is related to sensory manifestation. But manifestation is more truly in spiritual things, and in that respect, Augustine is right to say that light is more truly in spiritual things than in corporeal things, not on account of their having the proper nature of light, physical light, but rather on account of the manifestation as was said in the Canonica of John, that everything that is manifested is light, such that everything that is manifest is called bright, and everything hidden is called dark. Now, crucially, the brightness of intellectual intelligible being is not a manifestation to someone else or something else, some viewer standing off at a distance approaching it from the outside, the holder of the flashlight. Rather, the point is that intellectual intelligible be being is necessarily manifest to itself. The brightness is a brightness for itself. The beam is the thought itself. And Aquinas makes this point by insisting that anything intelligible in act understands itself. So we already saw that Aquinas' intelligible immaterial box turned out to be a case of self-understanding. So he says, if a box were to subsist by itself without matter, it would be self-understanding. And similarly, in Summa Contra Gentiles 298, when Aquinas insists that angels are essentially intelligible forms in act in the genus of intelligibles, he insists that the implication is not that Gabriel is therefore understood by any old angel, but rather that Gabriel understands himself. So here's the quote. He says, understanding occurs insofar as what is actually understood is one with the intellect in act. Whence a separate substance, although it is intelligible in act, nevertheless is not understood in itself, except by the intellect with which it is one. Okay. And then there's another interesting text where he says, what, one of the reasons he gives, um, this is Summa Contra Gentiles 282, um, there's an absurdity that would result if a non-human animal soul survives death. So he says, this can't be possible because then 
the soul of the squirrel that hypothetically, counterfactually survives death will be a form under, uh, separate from matter and therefore a form understood in act and therefore intellectual. Right. You can't have that. Okay. So these are not isolated remarks. They show us that for Aquinas, intellectual intelligible being has this special characteristic of being manifest. Not manifest to some third party, but manifest to itself. And I think this is actually, in retrospect, a not very surprising claim, because it's implied in the claim that Aquinas adopts from Aristotle and the Aristotelian commentary tradition that intellect becomes intelligible to itself in receiving the intelligible as the solution to the puzzle at the, at the end of the Anima 3-4. Okay. So now briefly, what is the philosophical significance of holding that the non-bodily genus of being is self-manifesting? So let me spe step into a more speculative mode and suggest that we should understand Aquinas as defending a view of immaterial being as fundamentally the very stuff of which intellectual experience is made. So it might be helpful here to compare to a commonplace distinction in contemporary philosophy of mind between the subjective and objective dimensions of thought. So the subjective properties of thought are those that are merely phenomenal. So they're called the what it is like, the conscious feel, the qualia, what's available from the inside of thought. And in contrast, the objective properties of thought are supposed to belong to some underlying stuff that is mind independent and analyzable by a third party and somehow responsible in some way for the feel of the subjective phenomenon. So if we apply this common distinction <coughs> to my listening to Beethoven's fifth piano concerto, we might say, okay, well, the objective features of my auditory experience are things that are commonly available for anyone to study, like the vibrating of my eardrum and the firing of certain neurons, or an immaterial activity, if you're uh, taking an immaterial account of sensation. In contrast, the subjective features are available only to me, the one who's living the phenomenon, having a distinct first-person perspective of the experience with an auditory character, the experience of tracking the melody or floating in waves of sound. <coughs> but what we see in Aquinas' view of intellectual intelligible being, I think, is a certain collapsing of the subjective-objective distinction. Self-manifestation just is what immaterial being is objectively. Immaterial being is not some non-cognitive inert stuff behind and beyond our phenomenological experience of stones and trees. Rather, it just is the living intellectual self-manifestation of stones and trees within us. So immaterial being is phenomenological <clears throat> all the way through. What it is like turns out to be one of the kinds of what is. So at this point, things might be getting a little bit confusing. We said that on Aquinas' view, knowing just is self-manifesting being, so it looks like knowing is always self-knowing. Fine, but someone might object. Look, we're never just knowing full stop. We're always knowing something. Triangularity, spiderness, etc. So when I'm knowing the nature of spiders, what's being manifest? Am I, is it the spider that's manifest to me? Or is it myself that's manifest to me? It's self-manifesting being. Who's the self that's being manifest? Um, now, I want to suggest that the two proposals actually come down to the same thing. And if we can see how that's the case, 
then we'll really have a handle on what Aquinas thinks is special about the being of thought. So we could put the point this way. The only way for spiders to become known is for spiderness to acquire self-manifesting being in me or someone else. Or to put more provocatively, spiderness only becomes manifest to itself as an actuality of my or someone else's intellectual potency. Okay. So to say that something is self-manifesting is to say that the what and the to whom of an episode of manifestation are identical. And if immaterial spider being is self-manifesting, that means that it's manifest through and through, and that its manifestation is not an appearance from the outside to some external onlooker, but rather something internal to immaterial being itself. What is manifest is the entirety of that immaterial, intellectual, intelligible, spidery being. And the entirety of that same being is also that to which it is manifest. In short, on, the self, on this view, the self-manifesting character of intellectual intelligible being can be articulated as my being manifest to myself, or as spiderness being manifest to itself, or as spiderness being manifest to me. These are just different ways of describing a single reality. The coming to be of self-manifesting spiderness in my soul as both me thinking and me thought. All right, let me move now to the takeaway um, of a view like this. There's obviously lots of problems in the background here um, that perhaps we can discuss during the Q&A. But this is, what I've given is just a basic sketch. Um, so what we have is the fundamental framework for recalibrating our approach to Aquinas' noetics along material lines. And the, the basic idea here is, instead of thinking of thought as connecting us with things, we should be thinking of thought as a kind of being to which we're in potency, a self-manifestation that we acquire intermittently. This kind of being is the very being of thought, which is equally the being of the thinker. There is just one kind of being that is both at once. Although we have a tendency to think of the mental as less real than the physical, for Aquinas, self-manifesting being is not less real than bodily being. It is just as real, if not more real, because it is more simple and less subject to contrariety. In fact, it is just one of the main kinds of being that there are. And I call this a metaphysical model of mind because the central philosophical in interests for such an account are going to be the standard metaphysical questions that apply to any nature and specifically to any living nature. Namely, we're going to want to know, in what kinds of entities does it naturally occur? What causes bring it about? What kinds of subjects are in potency to it? What kinds of activities does it perform and under what conditions? Toward what end is it developing? <clears throat> and these are actually the problems that consume Aquinas' attention in his own ex-professor writing about the intellect. Problems about how the agent intellect and the phantasm efficiently cause intelligibles in us. Problems about whether a bodily organ or the form of a body can be in potency to such being. Problems about whether having intellectual being only in potency undermines the definition of the human being as rational animal, etc. In contrast, he spends barely any time at all discussing a relationship to extramental things, in fact. 
So there's a plethora of unanswered questions at this point having to do with intentionality, judgment, reasoning, what do we make of the intelligible species as likenesses on a few like this. I won't try to tackle them here. I'm happy to do that in the Q&A. I simply want to finish up with one important uh, implication of this view. And that is this. Aquinas' metaphysical model of mind um, frees us up to think about immateriality in a different way. So it's well known that Aquinas thinks that intellectual cognition is immaterial. And I think it, perhaps by now it's clear that the earlier discussion of Aquinas's views on self-manifesting being actually come down to a substantive proposal about what immaterial being is. Namely, it's just self-manifestation. And so this opens up a new way to think about what you're committed to if you're committed to a metaphysical scheme that includes immaterial entities. Usually the philosophical road depositing immaterial entities unfolds something like this. We posit material things because we experience them. They're there, we're tripping over them. But then while we're trying to explain them, we encounter an explanatory gap somewhere and then we have to posit that there's non-material things in order to fill the gap. And from that perspective, we might think, well, we have a pretty good grasp of what, it, uh, what a material thing is like because we experience material things all the time. But we just absolutely have no clue what an immaterial thing might be like because we've never encountered any such thing, except perhaps in a mystical experience. But Aquinas is taking a very different way in. His claim is that immaterial being is one of the kinds of being that we already experience in the natural world. I encounter material, spatial-temporally extended being, by tripping over chairs and bumping into walls. But I do not stumble upon self-manifesting being from the outside. Rather, my encounter with it just is its manifestation to itself. Indeed, whenever I acquire it, I am experiencing it, because it is just nothing else other than a self-manifestation. As a result, for Aquinas, we already have empirical access to self-manifesting being every time it is actualized in us. And we already know what it is like. <clears throat> Indeed, our having it is just our experiencing what it is like. So from this perspective, the question of whether any entities are immaterial is not a question of whether any instances exist of some weird kind of being I know not what, which we imagine is wholly different from what we're used to but of which we have no experience. Rather, the question from Aquinas's, using it on Aquinas's trajectory, is simply how two familiar kinds of being are classified relative to each other. Is self-manifesting being a subspecies of physical being, or does it occupy its own genus? And to say that self-manifesting being is immaterial is to answer this classifying question, to deny that self-manifesting being is a kind of extended being. And so the situation here is precisely analogous to the case of an entomologist who's studying the black widow spider for many, many years and then asks at the end of the study, are these spider behaviors non-rational? To assert that they're non-rational isn't to attribute to them some special property I know not what, but simply to distinguish these familiar spider behaviors from another familiar behavior, rational behavior. And to justify this claim, the entomologist would have to show that the spider behavior is inconsistent 
with what we understand to be rational behavior. And that's similarly Aquinas' approach. Self-manifestation and other features of such being are demonstrably inconsistent with extension. No being can be extended and self-manifesting at the same time. And he makes exactly that argument in Summa Contra Gentilis 249 and his commentary on the Liber de Causis, Proposition 7. So in short, we're not in ignorant of what immaterial being is like. Quite the opposite, we're perhaps more intimately familiar with it than anything else. Now there's one further implication, and this, this will be the last thing, for Aquinas' broader metaphysical map. And this is perhaps surprising for those readers who like to pry him loose from his more neoplatonic sources. Namely, I think there's a case to be made that for Aquinas, self-manifesting or immaterial being is actually the paradigmatic case of being. Okay. So here's a passage from De, uh, De Ente et Essentia 3, where he seems to suggest something along those lines. Um, so he holds that, well, let me just read the text. We see that forms are not intelligible in actuality, except when they are separated from matter and its conditions. Whence, in every knowing substance, there must be full immunity from matter, such that it neither has matter as a part of itself, nor is a form impressed in matter as material forms are. Nor should someone say that not every kind of matter impedes intelligibility, but only bodily matter. And of course, he's thinking here of those interlocutors that posit spiritual matter that would enter into the composition of immaterial substances. For matter is only called bodily matter insofar as it's standing under a bodily form. And if impeding intelligibility belonged only to bodily matter, then ultimately the impeding of intelligibility would belong to matter due to the bodily form. And that cannot be the case, because even bodily form is intelligible in actuality. Indeed, every form is such insofar as it is abstract from matter. So I think what's interesting about this text is that Aquinas is explaining the existence of non-intelligible beings by asserting that matter adds a block or obstacle to intelligibility in the structure of being. All forms always would be intelligible forms belonging to the intelligible genus if it were not for the obstacle posed by matter. It's a distinction from Alexander of Aphrodisias, actually, that in mattered form is only potentially intelligible and form without matter is actually intelligible. And this picture of how created reality is structured turns out to be startlingly close to the standard Neoplatonic picture of paradigmatic being as intellect formed by intelligibles. Similarly for Aquinas, if to be is to be actual, and actuality is intelligible unless impeded, then intelligible being is the default for or paradigm case of being. From the perspective of a neutral observer of the whole of reality, as opposed to our limited embodied perspective, which of course begins from the experience of the senses oriented in relative to other bodies, what needs to be explained is not the existence of beings outside the genus of bodies, but rather the existence of beings outside the genus of intelligibles. It is not non-bodies that are the puzzle in the grand scheme of things, but non-intelligibles. Everything would be its own light if only it were immaterial. But some things are not. And that is why the flashlight beam of human thought is needed as the place where a dark world comes piecemeal to light. Thank you. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu/cts.